We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 84 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Lauren. I'm here in New York City. I'm joined by my sister, Renee. Say hello. Hello, everyone. So I've been waiting for this day. We've been waiting for this day. I still remember the day you told me he was going to be on our podcast. And I was like, seriously? (laughs) Big news. It was big news. (laughs) So our friend Brandon Burmeyer is on the show today. So he's a functional health friend. He's actually one of my mentors. I've learned so much from him. So I met Brandon at Paleo FX a couple of years ago, but I really know him because he is in the FDN community. He actually worked for FDN for a while and created a lot of their courses. So a lot of my education has been listening to Brandon. Uh, He, to me, in my opinion, he's just like the holy grail of functional health. Like if he says something, I believe it. Like yeah, I just trust him implicitly. I think he is so intelligent. He's also one of the kindest human beings. And I'm just so excited to bring this conversation to everyone. Yeah. I, I think you actually introduced me to him and I started following him and he's kind of my guru. I go to him and yeah, whatever he says, I'm like, yes, that makes so much sense. Why didn't I think of that? So I'm excited to share this episode with everyone. I think the knowledge that he brings is going to be mind-blowing for some of you, but just hang tight. He wraps it all up at the end with some like great, simple advice, like things that you can start today. Um, So I would say don't, you know, don't get overwhelmed if it's over your head at all. He wraps it up in a a pretty little gift by the end. And for practitioners out there, I think it's also going to blow your mind and you might realize you need to look into functional medicine a little bit deeper. Yeah. He really does put all the pieces together and definitely check him out on Instagram. That's his main, I think, platform for dispensing education and information. He is the holistic savage on Instagram. He has an amazing podcast too. And he's just really generous with with his knowledge. So before we bring him on, oh my gosh, just so excited. (laughs) Here's Brendan's bio. So Brendan is a functional medicine consultant, mental and metabolic health researcher, educator, writer, and speaker. He is a board-certified holistic health practitioner, master nutrition coach, master personal trainer, USAW sports performance coach, and CrossFit trainer. 
He began his career as a personal trainer and nutrition coach at the age of 19 after disappointingly being medically discharged from the United States Navy SEAL training pipeline due to an injury. After being exposed to the power of functional lab testing in the start of his career, he began intensely pursuing that as a career path, which has led him to be widely regarded as one of the top leading experts in metabolic health and functional education. He is the proud owner and founder of Metabolic Solutions Institute for Functional Health and Fitness Practitioners. When he's not educating doctors, practitioners, professionals, helping clients overcome their most severe health health struggles, or producing cutting-edge scientific education, Brennan enjoys all things fitness and is probably working out. He also enjoys anything in nature and any activities that expand his heart mind and soul. That is so beautiful. I just want to touch on the exercise piece. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll see at least once a week, he's in the gym, just deadlifting an insane amount of weight. He's just such a beast. (laughs) He's equally as kind and loving as he is strong. So help me to welcome Brendan onto the show. All right, Brendan, welcome to the show. This is such a good day. (laughs) I agree. I think it's going to be a really good day. I'm, I'm, only partially nervous to be talking to the biohacker babes. It's just, uh, it's a lot for a man to handle, but I'm excited to be here with you both. It's really an honor. Well, we feel the same about you and we're just so honored that you are giving us this time. So we read your bio already to our, our audience. So I think they have an idea of how incredible you are. And I don't mean to embarrass you in any way, but I just think you really are an amazing guy. And there's even... I think some meat that's maybe not included in the bio that you can't put on paper that really makes you special at what you do. I think you have uh, such a passion for spirituality and human connection. And to me, that kind of really drives what you do as a practitioner. So I don't think you work with clients anymore. You mostly work with other practitioners, but you've kind of done everything in your, in your experience. So I just think you're really special. And I think our audience is going to realize that by the time this episode is over. But can you start us off with your personal story? So we want to talk about mental health, maybe the stigma around mental health today, and then get into some functional lab testing and then how you're actually helping the people. So where did you start? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm really excited. And I think the world of both of you too. And, and honestly, like we're going to do this functional friends meetup thing. I swear, yeah. like I'll, I'm going to orchestrate this. It'll be a thing. Um, Cause That'd I think we are really at a, at a time kind of a passing of the torch from generation to generation by the year 2025, I think it's 75% of the workforce is going to be millennials. So that's, that's the passing of the torch that's going on. So when I see the work that, like the work that I'm doing, but then I see people like yourselves. I mean, we are that next generation. It's it's a different way of thinking. It is more holistic. It is more integrative. Um, even though functional integrative holistic kind of gets thrown around a lot, there's mm-hmm. a huge difference still in what it really means to think and live and operate holistically. And you two have it. And even though there's a lot of saturation in our industry now, not everybody has it, but you two do. And so that's what that makes this conversation so special to me. And and your kind words really mean a lot because it's been a trippy ride. I don't know. I A lot of people ask me how I got to where I am. And it's like, there's literally no straight answer. I, I started scrubbing toilets at a gym when I was 17 and signed a six-year Navy SEAL contract when I was 18 
I always have had this burning drive in deep in my soul. So as as a young man just trying to figure out life, I, you know, I took it pretty literally. I, I thought I needed to shoot terrorists for a living. So that that was the goal. You know, Navy SEAL sniper was what I wanted to do. <laughs> I think the man upstairs had other plans. So I was actually halfway through SEAL boot camp. So not not buds, not SEAL training. I never got that far. Um, I was halfway through boot camp when they found I had that in inguinal hernia that I have listed in the uh, the bio. And they decided it was um, uh, it was a pre-existing injury, which means it's not their problem, it's not their liability. So they medically discharge people like that. And there was a number of my boot camp buddies. You know, one of one of my buddies was peeing blood. You know, so they sent him home, or they sent me home. Most of the people that get discharged out of boot camp, uh, it's because they failed their drug test. As soon as you get off the bus at boot camp, you pee in a cup right away. So a lot of people just failed the drug test, but mine was a medical situation. It really sucks. You know, I, I was young. I, I never wanted to be a college kid. The academia route didn't interest me at all. I, I don't have the attention span for that. Um, That's hard so, to believe. I know, I know right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Just the, the college kid lifestyle. I always felt like an alien anyways, just growing up, psychedelic sheep, the family. So the idea of like going to college and living in a dorm and going to class and making the grade, I was a good student, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll get more into this, but I was diagnosed with ADHD and major depressive disorder when I was 21. So it was kind of like graduate high school, pursue the Navy SEAL thing. That dream got just ripped away from me. That sent me into a deep depression. Um, but it was during that time I spent about a year trying to get back into the military. I was talking to my my SEAL recruiters. I was talking to the Marines. I you know I was doing everything, and people don't, people don't realize it's actually not that easy to get into the military at all. Uh, you have to have nothing wrong with you, spotless record, nothing medical, nothing psychological going on with you, uh, let alone to get into the special operations division. I tested like 92 or 85, somewhere in there on the ASVAB, which is high enough to qualify for the, the spec ops pro. You have to be smart to be a special operations warfare um, soldier. I also qualified for the Navy nuclear program. So, you know, I'm, I think I'm a half intelligent dude, uh, even though I don't think my ACT score is really reflecting that. But, but the, her the hernia was enough to disqualify you? Yeah. So it's actually a little more complicated because when they find something like that, you have the opportunity to meet with a Navy lawyer on site and you can fight your case if you want, you know, you can try to fight for it and like, well, no, I got this injury while in boot camp, therefore it is your problem. But that process can take about six to 12 months of just fighting the legal battle. And that still doesn't guarantee that you're going to actually win the battle or get to stay in the military. So I literally, I just accepted my fate uh, of, all right, I'm going to go home, get surgery, get right back in. And so it still took about two weeks to be processed out. And that was like the most miserable two weeks. You have nothing to do other than just sit around in a holding tank. In fact, this, this probably is relevant for the convo that we're going to have. Um, the, it's called SEPs, the SEPs division separations. And so it's really just a holding tank. It kind of feels like you're in prison because you're you're still in the military, but you have no purpose. You're not in Oof. training. 
you're not graduated, so you're just dead weight. So they just mm -hmm. put you to work doing like janitorial stuff and you have a lot of hours that you're just losing your mind thinking about what's going on. And it for me, it was two weeks, but previously it used to take six, 12 months to process people out. And they, they were having issues with sailors, well, SEPs, not even sailors yet. They were having issues with people killing themselves while in this holding tank. So they had bars on the windows and they had kind of like a suicide watch because it was a whole thing of, you know, your mental health isn't usually very good when you're in purgatory. So yeah, um, wow. Yeah. That's it really intense. Nuts. Yeah, yeah. So I got home within two weeks of that, uh, had surgery within a week was right back in the gym, and hell bent on getting back into the military. So I got my job back scrubbing toilets and folding towels. And it was really during that time, I yeah, I was just starting to get really depressed. And I, I was kind of at this crossroads. And I was always very passionate about health and fitness more so the fitness at the time, I didn't care about health, I was, you know, 18 and fit and whatever. Um, but everybody at the gym knew me just because I was always there. I worked there, I worked out there, I lived there. So the personal training manager, when I expressed interest in being a trainer, he's like, Hey, man, you know, don't go to college quite yet, get certified, and we'll give you a shot. Um, so that's what I did. I got my NASM CPT, I got my precision nutrition level one, uh, I started personal training nutrition coaching when I was 18. And that's the thing, I still don't have a college degree. It's not really something I talk about much. But you know, here I am doing whatever it is I'm doing anymore. And uh, kind of yeah, you lecture to doctors most days. So yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, that it's not yeah. necessary, then. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally not necessary. I, you know, it, it's, I think it, I think that's something I have previously had a little bit of maybe shame or embarrassment around because uh, I think when I was first kind of making my rounds in the industry, because I was, I was surrounded by licensed medical providers that had been through, you know, eight plus years of academia and jumped through all the licensure hoops. And so I know it's not like I went around telling people I didn't have, but I earned their respect without them ever knowing. And then now being that where I'm at, I have no problem admitting it. Because then mm -hmm. I want people to know like, there is no clear path in the functional medicine industry. There's no such thing as a doctor of functional medicine. So until there is actually a functional medical school, whatever the hell we're doing in this industry, it's more of a thought process and a paradigm. It's not really an established methodology or, or credential. And so, you know, I, I want people to know that the only limitations in life or whatever limitations you create for yourself in your own mind. Yeah. I mean, I say this all the time, you know, I, I got my master's in nutrition, but most of what I applied to my client with my clients every day, I didn't learn in grad school. Yeah, I really didn't. Most of it was before, after outside, you know, so you don't always need that. No, yeah. I, I was working there for a while. Um, there, there's a lot of ups and downs in my early twenties. Cause there for a while I was, I was working at the gym, lifetime fitness, great, great corporation. Glad I started with them. It taught me a lot. And for a while I was working full time while taking classes at a junior college. And I remember I just, I, I, you know, blame it on the ADD, you know, AWOL nation or something. But I remember I was in general chemistry one. And I failed this exam where I had to calculate the energy of a photon, convert it to joules to the 10th decimal point. And if you get it wrong by a single decimal point, you just, you get zero points, not, not a few, you get zero points. 
And so I was just like, what am I doing? Like the only reason I'm here is to advance my education so I can better serve my clients back at the gym. And here I am calculating the energy of photon and joules. So it's just like, and I just can't, I'm not one of those people that can jump through hoops because like, I'm not a dog. I don't jump through hoops on command. So um, yeah, I dropped out of school and, and focused on expanding my knowledge and education experience outside of academia. And I think that's worked out pretty well for me. So <laughs> that's insane yeah. that you can remember the question on the exam. Yeah, I, the brain, it does things, you know, <laughs> you need to go back to that professor and say, I remember every little detail is shame yeah. on you for not passing me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so was it during that time that you started having any of your own health issues? I mean, you mentioned like the ADHD, some depression, some depression. like what was going on in your personal life? Um, you know, hindsight 2020, I would, uh, I would say that I think in high school and middle school, I was probably a high functioning, depressed individual, young man. Um, you know, as a teenager, I, I had no conception of what depression was or is or ADHD or, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, I always knew I felt very, very different. I always felt very alienated. I was really just a wallflower in high school. I didn't talk for four years and I just kept to myself, did sports, made, made the grade. I graduated with like 3.8. So it's not like I was unintelligent, but I, I always struggled to apply myself to things that didn't interest me. So, you know, pre-calculus and chemistry, I just didn't, didn't care about. But if it interested me, I was obsessed and I've always been a very one track minded of I have one thing I care about. And if it's not related, I don't care at all. Um, and that served me really well outside, but you know, the Navy thing definitely added to the, you know, psychological depressive load. Uh, I really just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere in life and I felt very stuck and, you know, working for that, uh, health and fitness corporation, I fell in love with the line of work. I loved serving people. I loved a more science-based way. Um, like, I'm glad I didn't start with not, not nothing against like 24 hour or anything, but I'm glad I started with lifetime that exposed me to lab testing, exposed me to, you know, VO2 testing and just more sciencey stuff. Um, Cause I just fell in love with the science of the human metabolism. And so even from the beginning of my, that's, that's where it all started. And what kind of guided me down into the functional medicine road years later was even as a personal trainer nutritionist, of course, most of my clients were weight loss clients and metabolic syndrome. So what do they want? They want to lose weight. That's always their goal until you dig deeper and make them cry. And of <laughs> course, they're using the scale and they get frustrated at the scale. And so even from day one, I was like, okay, we're not going to use the scale to measure progress. We're going to use blood work because it's the most sensitive way. And we're going to see uh, change happen internally before externally. So that's really where it all started in this idea of working smarter, not harder, and you know, trying to make it as efficient and easy on the client as possible just by using a more intelligent way. But yeah, it was... 19 to 21, I just started getting more and more depressed. Um, you know, and I was also, again, with working full time, going to school full time. But then, yeah, it was when I was so actually <laughs> about to drop this on you both tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is my seven year anniversary of waking up in the intensive care unit, breathing out of a tube. Uh, I'd been wow. in a wow. coma for about 60 hours because I had 
uh, intentionally swallowed an entire bottle of my antidepressant Wellbutrin, which is a dopamine agonist. So two weeks prior, I so when I when I was first, I'll back up. I know that's a big big thing to drop. The first time I was put on a medication was when I was 17. That was Zoloft, SSRI. And that was really just because I had mentioned to my general practitioner, I was doing a, a physical for sports. And I made a comment about, you know, winter's coming up. I don't like winter. I feel kind of down. So without question, here's Zoloft. Uh, that did not work well for me at all. No so diagnostic, up, just yeah, no, symptoms, no. Nope. candy. Nothing. Yeah, no blood work, no referral to a clinical psychologist, uh, nothing. Just here's Zoloft might make you feel better, made me feel worse. And of course, sure. you know, that's, you know, I do a lot of teaching around that now. But, you know, there's black box warnings on all the psychiatric meds, whether it's, you know, an SNRI, SSRI, or the benzodiazepines, all of them. Because uh, we know, we see that these can increase the risk of suicidal ideation or suicide uh, behavior. So yeah. that was when I was yeah. 17. I was doing some psychotherapy, you know, throughout those years, meeting with therapists. But it wasn't until I was 21 that then I think it was, re- I don't, I don't remember why, but I went back to the doctor. And then they prescribed Wellbutrin again, without any testing, without any, any investigation, but they did then refer me to a clinical psychologist uh, clinic. So I actually went uh, underwent formal testing and got the formal diagnosis of major depressive disorder and ADHD. And then it was two, two weeks later that I overdosed. So mm, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's one of those things like I'm an open book. Uh, you know, a lot of times people are like, Oh, thank you so much for being vulnerable. And it's just like, well, yeah, but there's so much stigma around this stuff. It, it amazes me, honestly, like how stigmatic mental health really is. Because like, when you look at the fact that suicide is the number two cause of death for ages 10 to 34 for Americans, and the fourth leading cause of death for 35 to 55, and 10th leading cause of death overall, or suicide rates are twice as high as homicide rates, neurodegenerative disease is in the top seven. So and then add 2020 in there. Yeah, yeah, that's pre 2020. Those stats are from 2018. Oh, wow. You know, or within the first month of 20, well, not 2020, from mid February to mid March of 2020, right in the start of the pandemic, we saw a 33% increase in psychiatric drug prescription fills. And we, we were already by far the global leader of psychiatric drug use, us in like Iceland or, or somewhere that would make you depressed. Like, I don't know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. wrong with Iceland now? Uh, well, which I, I might've messed that up. No. Whatever country it is. Just yeah. so much rain and clouds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Brendan, I, I'll share my open book story with you. So I had a similar experience with being put on meds. When I was a teenager, I was dealing with anorexia. I was, I had obsessive compulsive disorder and this therapist told my parents, oh, she's just depressed, put her on this. And there was some SSRI, I don't remember which one. And fortunately at the time, our mom and dad knew better and they were like, that's going in the trash. Hell no. (laughs) Yeah, but that was their answer. No lab testing, no referrals. Oh, she's just depressed, put her on this. So common. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, things are sharing, yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, I think the more we can share our personal experiences, it's going to help someone else because you know there's yeah. someone else that had the same thing 
that you did. Same thing that I did. So, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that we have gotten to this point in the conversation. This is exactly where I was hoping to land. (laughs) There is the stigma about mental health, but it seems like lately our culture is going in the direction of destigmatizing it, but almost too much so where it's just, it's like the obesity thing. It's like, it's okay that you're depressed or have ADHD because we're all going to support each other. You can own that. Like you are not your disease. Are we getting away from addressing the real causes or maybe getting away from truly helping people just by, I guess, emotionally supporting? I just feel like there's this movement online. It's like, we're in this together. It's okay. Yes, be vulnerable, but like, let's not stop there. Yeah. um, I don't know that I'm going to win popularity points with it, but I think there's, I think humans are a really, really silly species, very egocentric. I think we have a really big issue with victim mentality and entitlement and chasing fads and jumping on bandwagons. It it just kind of goes with it. And so like with the, with the vulnerability kind of poking fun a little bit, like authentic vulnerability is, is a very important thing. And it is a very healing energetic state to enter into when somebody can hold the safe and non-judgmental space to actually enable authentic vulnerability but all the you know millions of young people chattering and chanting and oh look at me and oh and they're victimizing themselves they have victim mentality Mm -hmm. they feel like the universe has done them wrong they want to uh cry about it and say that oh i'm just being vulnerable and they get all that affirmation you're being so vulnerable and it's like all of that behavior is so egocentrically toxic and that's not true authenticity. That's not doing anything now. So, but you know, it's being it, applauded. People which applaud just that. enables it. You know, yeah. it, it just yeah. enables it. Which is why, like when I when I do share my story and stuff online, you know, I, I don't want people to thank me for my vulnerability because it's like I'm not being vulnerable. If I was being emotionally vulnerable, you might see some like, you know, tears or something, but it's like, you can't convey that through the internet. It's, it's, it's like fake vulnerability. And then it's, it's affirmation seeking behavior. Um, And I just can't stand that kind of stuff. It's, it's just ego. And as long as people are just tripped up in their own ego, no healing ever gets done. The very first step to healing is check the ego, tap into the higher self and actually start unraveling your own shit. So yeah, Mm -hmm. to just to your point, there's just, it's becoming the popular thing and everybody wants to be a victim. Everybody wants to get that affirmation of thank you for your vulnerability, but nobody's actually being vulnerable. Nobody's actually doing anything that moves the needle in a positive direction. Yeah. I'm so glad you touched on the spirituality and psychology bit. I do want to come back to that, but just Mm -hmm. to further this point about what's happening in our, our culture. So we all have chronic disease, right? Like Americans are very unhealthy. I mean, there's that's worldwide, there's but 12%. Americans are <laughs> <laughs> Americans are especially metabolically unhealthy. And I think this mental health thing is kind of getting wrapped up in this cycle where we're not really addressing the issue and we're kind of perpetuating it, right? With drugs, with marketing, with this victim mentality. What would you say about that? Because I think your personal story has really driven your mission to truly help people through functional health, lab testing, education. So how do we get there? We've got a lot of work to be done. Like it honestly blows my mind. And 
And there's few people I can really relate to. And that's why conversations like this are such a pleasure for me. We've got such a long ways to go. The, the conventional narrative that we're being spoon fed is so archaic and, and so dogmatic. So like, here's the thing, um, you, you literally have to like start reverse engineering the mechanism of action of the pharmaceuticals to even really kind of understand what's going on here. But like from an epidemiological and statistical perspective, so there was this uh, awesome report done back in 2010, it was published in 2012, and it was a Medicare beneficiary chronic disease analysis. And so what they found, and this is you know already over a decade old data, but even a decade ago, what this report found was that out of these Medicare beneficiaries that had been diagnosed with all these different chronic conditions, they found that the individuals with diagnosed major depressive disorder, 90% of these individuals had at least one other chronic condition, and 40% of them had five plus other chronic conditions. So to make what could be a long conversation very, very concise, you know, depression mental illness is a comorbidity of chronic disease. And so when you look at 88% of Americans are metabolically ill, 70% are overweight, 43% are diabetic or, or type 2 diabetic, and literally, I mean, I have the research to validate it, but whether it's, you know, IBD or neurodegenerative disease or diabetes or uh, cardiovascular disease, mental illness is a comorbidity of, of chronic disease, period. So you can't have good mental health without half-decent metabolic health. Now, I think what makes mental health a little bit more complicated to tease out, for one thing, that's the lens through which we experience reality. So it gets really trippy from just a psychological perspective. And it's not, you know, cardiovascular disease, okay, we're talking about your blood pump. But mental health, we're talking about psychology and physiology. We're talking about your belief system, your outlook, your behavior, and your neurochemistry, and your biochemistry, and your physiology. So it, I, and that's why anybody that follows me, you know, the yin yang, little brain yin yang that I have, that's that's what that yin yang represents. I don't think I've ever explained that on the internet. Maybe I should. But the whole point is that brain of it's the two sides. It's the yin and the yang, the light, the dark, the physiology, the psychology. And so you have to do both. And my thing when I was younger, because I was working with psychotherapists, and my thing was like, especially with getting those diagnostic labels, I never felt like I had a bad outlook or bad attitude or I'm making myself depressed or anything like that. To me, it was more of like a physiological thing. I felt like my body just wasn't performing or feeling the way I wanted it to. And so, you know, I, you know I'm not a psychologist and I don't, I don't try to act like it, but I simply have such a deep appreciation for the psychosomatic side of it because you have to do both. Like mm -hmm. you can do all the you know, inner child healing, shadow work, uh, positive thinking you want. But if your brain is inflamed and on fire from all of these underlying metabolic stressors, you're not going to get very far. But similarly, too, like you could be doing all the functional medicine stuff. But if you're spiritually bypassing all of your psycho emotional trauma and whatnot, so it has to be both, we have to do the psychological, the psychosomatic, but we also have to be looking for those root causes physiologically, that are just putting your brain on fire. And, and ultimately, it's inflammation that drives any sort of any sort of mental illness, or at least exacerbates it. Yeah, so, so important. I don't mean to make this too light of a subject. But now I'm picturing your plate of food that you post on Instagram pretty often. I think it's hummus. 
in the yeah. shape of a yin yang. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it's, that. It's one, like a, but... you go to a raw food restaurant, I think, and yeah, you get yeah, your yin yang of hummus. Yeah. My my favorite cafe, the the yin yang, as as the hummus, and yeah. I, so I, I did martial arts growing up, and uh, martial arts was actually like my very first passion. So I did karate, got a black belt, Krav Maga, MMA, wrestling. So kind of. <laughs> You know, kind of we a did tough mar- guy background. We did martial arts too when we were kids. Oh yeah, I can yeah. see that. I can see oh, that. Oh yeah, ninja belts. Yeah, that's in nineteen ninety-seven. So we're all black belts here. That's badass. <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it sticks with you, doesn't it? So the the yin yang and bushido and honor and the samurai way, like that that shit yeah. stuck. Yeah. Oh yeah, the discipline, the integrity, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely exactly. a great lesson. Yeah. Well, I love the holistic approach. I feel like you just explained that better than anyone else has ever explained that. You know, I think people think mental health, I'll just go to therapy, but they go to therapy for years and years and they're like, I don't know why it's not working, you know, but maybe it's all the the other 50 reasons that you mentioned, right? It's, yeah, I think you really got to do both. And, And I'm just really thinking back to like when I was a teenager and was having these issues, you know, therapy did nothing for me. But maybe it was because I was on a blood sugar roller coaster all day, every day, and my cortisol was out of whack all day, every day. But no one was looking at that. So how do you approach this with your, well, when you were working more with clients and you're working a lot more with practitioners now, but with clients, like, do you start with some labs? Where do you begin? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, which mentioned it earlier, my primary thing is, is training medical and health professionals and, and all of that. But I do still work with um, some private clients and oh, you know, okay, great. kind of a tighter, more exclusive clientele. So, you know, as far as the psychology, you know, I can't help but bring her up, but um, Nicole LaPere, she's a, a dear friend and, and one of my clients. And it's really, it was, it's been a really cool experience to, you know, be close with her and, and whatnot, because she's obviously doing just amazing work within the realm of holistic psychology, but why I bring her up is to your point, uh, Nicole's whole thing that motivated her career path was, you know, she was a trauma psychologist. She's a doctor of clinical psychology. She worked with trauma and her whole thing being a holistic minded forward thinking individual was she's like, you know, if I'm trying to help these patients work out of their trauma, why are we always spending time in that dark traumatic place and like reliving it because all you're doing is then locking your nervous system into that sympathetic fear state right so you know now we have all of this expanded knowledge around you know polyvagal theory or autonomic regulation and but that's what it is right and and so even though like I'm, I'm not a psychologist but I know a thing or two about just neuroscience and how that plays into it so it's really it's been really cool with Nicole and I where she's more focused on the psychology side of it and I'm doing a little bit more from the the physiological side of it, but it's all still built on the same uh, principles, right? And so a lot of that comes down to neuroplasticity and autonomic nervous system regulation and anything that's disrupted to that. So like conventional healthcare, the the more I've learned about it, the more I have an appreciation for it. And obviously I, I wouldn't be alive today without it. So I don't like the anti-conventional sentiment that we have going on in our industry. I, I think that's immature and, and sort Silly. of, yeah, exactly. Now, the fact that our healthcare system exclusively relies on drugs and surgery for what's a lifestyle and environmental pandemic, 
you know, that's the problem. And, and that's really where the, the functional and, and holistic come into play. So in a lot of my lecture slide decks, I have this thing that I created that I call the interventions, the integrative intervention spectrum. So it has, you know, psychology, environment, lifestyle, supplementation, and then allopathic drugs and surgery. So we have a healthcare system that exclusively relies on that, which is more of an emergency reactive kind of thing. Uh, and we don't have a, you know, insurance covered system of health that does anything with the rest of it. So it's, it's just very incomplete. But the thing is, um, as I alluded to before, ultimately, it's inflammation, that's really the culprit. It doesn't matter if it's depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, autism spectrum. Now, some of these more um, severe or complicated mental conditions like autism spectrum disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, those still are really driven and exacerbated by inflammation and excitotoxicity, but there is a more pronounced genetic component. So I just, I don't want any listeners get like pissed at me for, for saying, <laughs> well, not just these people don't just have inflamed brain. Well, no, they, they do have very pronounced gen epigenetic, genetic predispositions and, and you know, weaknesses uh, in some pathways, but also strengths in other pathways. But it's simply, sure. hey, if you're putting you know, garbage in through the environment or the diet, the lifestyle that's just driving meta-chronic inflammation and that's driving the neuroinflammation excitotoxicity, any of those conditions just become exacerbated. So what I like to say anybody and everybody can and will experience symptoms of depression, anxiety, which is really just driven by inflammation. Uh, but if they have the genetic inclination, then then yeah, their autism or their, you know, bipolar behavior, and everything is a spectrum, bipolar is a spectrum, schizophrenia is a spectrum. So we can simply look at it as if we can identify healing opportunities metabolically and optimize metabolic function, optimize psychology, well, it doesn't matter what the genetic sequence is saying, you're, you're changing the epigenetics, and you're gonna, you know, lessen the severity of whatever inclination, right? So yeah, and give us all a better fighting chance, no matter what our circumstances are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and of course, these days, uh, you know, I, I tend to not say things that are excessively bold, you know, I try to stay really rooted in, in very validated things. But even with um, like autism spectrum, at this point, there is such strong evidence of showing all sorts of underlying etiological factors that our healthcare system is not at all acknowledging or doing anything about whether it's celiac or whether it's disturbances to the microbiome or the microbiome or, or any of this, so, or mercury. So, there definitely are a lot of these more functional medicine subjects that are, so, and that's that's what's kind of funny about it. The research is so. <laughs> the research is always like at least a decade behind what we're starting to think about and talk about in practice, yeah. but then mm -hmm. the healthcare system is about ten years behind the research. So we have like this twenty-year gap phenomena of what we're thinking, what we're seeing, what we're. Um, starting to intuitively be like, hey, it seems like this is a thing that maybe we need to pay attention to. Well, and then it takes like a decade for the research to catch up. And then it takes about a decade for um, the clinical practice in conventional healthcare to catch up. Like yeah. it's just now that celiac testing is becoming widely dispensed through conventional healthcare, but it's still just because it's available doesn't mean it's the first thing gastroenterologists are thinking about. 
I don't know very many gastros that are looking at celiac profiles and measuring tissue drains glutaminase. Like they're still really overlooking it. So, you know, when it comes to all these mental health functional medicine subjects of like the gut brain axis is a big one or methylation or, or diabetes or any of these things, uh, it's going to be such a long time. And as we're seeing, we are in a horrible mental health crisis right here, right now. So like we don't have time for the system to catch up, but just so you guys know, to, to maybe add more validation to the point of inflammation really kind of being the root cause that we care about, the science already knows this. So right now, there's uh, monoclonal antibody drugs that are in phase two clinical trials for treatment-resistant depression. So what they're doing, they have these really cool monoclonal antibodies. They harvest immunoglobulins from mice, uh, basically. But these monoclonal antibodies are designed to selectively bind and neutralize different uh, cytokines in immune modulators. So for example, there's a whole class of drugs that are TNF-alpha inhibitors. Those are kind of used for irritable bowel disease like Crohn's. And if you pay attention to some of the commercials on TV, they're marketing these drugs you know, through mainstream media on TV. Like, oh yeah, try this drug if you have you know, uh, Crohn's disease or whatever. So these monoclonal antibodies, they'll block TNF-alpha, which is major pro-inflammatory cytokine, or the one that they're really studying right now is an interleukin-6 monoclonal antibody neutralizing drug. They already tried it for, I think they were looking, doing clinical trials for rheumatoid arthritis, and it had some efficacy, but they were also having people die and too much mortality. So they're like, probably not, but let's try it for depression. And so my point with bringing this up, you know, the psychiatric drugs that are widely used, SSRI, serotonin reuptake, you know, SNRI, serotonin norepinephrine, or benzodiazepines, GABA drugs, or NMDA receptor uh, antagonists like ketamine. So a lot of the current psychiatric drugs, it's more the monoamine theory of depression. So looking at how can we artificially balance your brain chemicals? And that's kind of the narrative. But the narrative that we're fed mainstream is like, we don't know why there's nothing you can do. We just need to put you on the right meds to balance your crazy brain chemicals. But as far as to bring validation to the inflammation, well, yeah, they're, they're researching anti-inflammatory drugs as a new class of antidepressants or you know, vagus nerve stimulation. That was approved a long time ago for treatment-resistant depression. So the narrative that we're being fed doesn't actually align with the clinical trials. It doesn't align with the therapies that have been approved. Uh, it doesn't even align, the narrative does not at all align with the literature that everything's being based off. So again, that's where the healthcare is behind the research and the research is behind what we already intuitively know. Okay, whoa. <laughs> Just so I understand what you're saying. So we're obviously being dosed information as they want us to hear it or learn about it. And these SSRIs, that, that class of drugs is blocking, right? So I just picture a Band-Aid. They know about inflammation. We know inflammation is helpful, but now they're coming up with this new class of drugs to also Band-Aid. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is a, a lot of times what I, what I like to do is you know, I'm, I'm looking at, here's, here's the way that our healthcare system and pharmaceutical system really works is, you know, they are, uh, and this is why we can't poo-poo on them too much, because they're studying something down to 
the smallest molecular detail. You know what I mean? Like the whole point of pharmaceuticals, it's precision medicine of this, this thing is going to, you know, it's going to inhibit the signal needed to create inflammation. It's going to activate this receptor. It's going to block this transporter. So, you know, this is why I, even though pharmaceuticals are amazing, just the birth of pharmaceuticals has totally bastardized what medicine really is. You know, Hippocrates is probably looking at down at us from heaven, like, what <laughs> the hell? You got it all this wrong. Is, yeah, this is like, remember when I said death <laughs> yeah. begins in the colon? What the hell are you guys doing? Right, You know what I right. mean? Or like, <laughs> going the wrong know, way. the art of yeah. medicine is entertaining the patient while nature does the healing. Like, what happened to that? Yeah. You know, so we're being fed this narrative of, you know, modern medicine. Now, the achievements and the science is amazing, but the narrative is just so d- archaic and ridiculous. And so anyway, but yeah, what they're doing is producing drugs that, well, we're not going to tell you that you should decrease inflammatory input signals from your lifestyle, your environment. You don't have to do that. We're just gonna we're just gonna block the inflammatory messenger. Which what's the problem with that? What happens when you block your immune system's communi- communicative mediators, which are chaos. what cytokines are? <laughs> yeah, chaos and infection and immunosuppression. And so you know, immunosuppression—that's kind of a you know when you're in the middle of a pandemic of infectious disease and you're using. Mm. So we're in an infectious disease pandemic, a mental health pandemic, but now we're going to roll out a new class of antidepressants that block the inflammatory signal, which also lowers immune status, right? Right. Which is going to start teaching people that we don't want inflammation, which I think people are already under that assumption. Same thing with cortisol. We're blaming cortisol. Like we don't want cortisol. It's bad. It's not bad. Inflammation is not bad. We have to look at the lifestyle surround it. and. To come back to the the balance aspect, we it needs to be in the correct rhythm, yeah, dose and yeah. alignment. Dose dose makes the poison, right? It's it's physiological level for like for example, brain drive neurotrophic factor that we love talking about. You know, good old BDNF. Which if there is such a thing as a depression molecule, that's it. Uh, BDNF is probably the single most powerful molecule, the most validated thing that we have, that's kind of like the molecule of mental health. But even that, because I, I see I see the information that floats around the internet, I see what a lot of the biohackers or even functional medicine people are saying about BDNF, and it's still overly simplified. So, you know, BDNF, it's a neurotrophic factor, it induces neuroplasticity, it's a neuroprotective agent. And there's tons of research that show well, even SSRIs, they they do consistently raise BDNF, which which is a good thing. It's it's neuroprotective. It's kind of anti-inflammatory in a way. But it, it's it's a complicated conversation because really, so the way I describe it in some of my lectures is, you know, if we have mental or uh, neurological homeostasis and equilibrium, you know, we're, we're in balance with that teeter totter. And so on each side of that teeter-totter, you kind of have one side that's your neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. So that's, let's create new neural networks, let's heal the brain, let's make new brain cells, let's remodel as we see fit. Uh, And on the other side of that teeter-totter is neuroinflammation and excitotoxicity. So basically, as it sounds, brain on fire and it's toxic. And these are really antagonistic. And so we do have to be looking at how do we uh, decrease pro-inflammatory input signals from the lifestyle and the environment and the psyche. 
but then we also have to be, you know, how do we promote BDNF? And right now, I'll, I'll say it now, we're going to have a commercially available BDNF marker for testing eventually. Whoever is the first to produce it, they're going to make a lot of money. I'd be the first <laughs> to buy it. Um, for sure. Because, like a blood test? Yeah, a serum BDNF test. They measure it yeah. in re research purposes all the time. And even though scientists are... The thing about science, like they have to be really damn sure, really, really strong evidence before that's going to get accepted into like healthcare or pharmaceutical. You're not going to invest what, you know, billions of dollars into producing a pharmaceutical unless you're pretty damn sure that if we inhibit or modulate this one mechanism, disease itself goes into a halt, right? So that's mm -hmm. the thing is a lot of the, the stuff that we like to chant and preach in the functional holistic it's not wrong necessarily, but the the power is so much weaker than some of these. So that's one maybe critique I have for our own industry is like, we're not wrong and I love the holistic attitude, but we can't necessarily say that this herb is going to be as powerful for halting pathophysiology as this drug that has a very precise mechanism of action. But sometimes it does. Like sometimes the herbs are as you know, or nutraceuticals or supplements. So the truth is in the middle. Like the the conventional narrative is so uh, archaic and outdated. But if anything, it's it's and it's kind of like it, it's very polarized, right? And it's not oh, very yeah. different than politics, where it's like you've got these you know radical left, radical right, and it's like <laughs> you can't be both. Yeah, the, the truth yeah. is in the middle, though. And, and <laughs> yeah. same thing with us. Like if if anything, our industry we're kind of like the liberals that it's like. I think you guys might want to fact check yourselves, maybe check the strength of the science of what you're actually preaching. Because if anything, we flirt with being too early of adopters, whereas conventional flirts with being, oh my God, like, are you ever going to accept that this is a thing? The science has been, you know what I mean? Right, so. right. We need thousands of studies before we can say yeah, it's okay it's, yeah well, where it's we're like no we just need one that's like yeah. n of one it's good yeah. for me yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. it's like uh my aura said so i'm gonna believe it. right 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 yeah, right. yeah you exactly. need to find that balance hey biohackers renee here the truth is people age at different speeds the date that marks your birthday doesn't necessarily reflect your body's biological age your inner age learning your biological age may seem daunting but inner age is more than just a simple measurement. It's the starting point for you to take control of your health and wellness journey. Inside Tracker is a personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and now fitness trackers to help you optimize your performance from the inside out. First, they analyze your body's biomarker data to offer you a clear picture of what's going on inside you. Then they provide science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes and track your progress every step of the way. Transforming your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take advantage of our amazing partnership with Inside Tracker and get 25% off. Just go to insidetracker.com slash biohackerbabes. We will also put this link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, it's interesting yeah. because really like allopathic medicine, I mean, it came from more of a plant medicine route. If you yeah. think about it, like aspirin came from a plant originally, Viagra yeah. came from, oh, nitric oxide support works, you know? So it's like, why can't we just find a middle ground between all of that? 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's not, I mean, penicillin, yeah. where, where does that come from? Mold. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Convenient. Medications. Where do they, they come from mold, you know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the inflammation topic, people are yeah. probably wondering that are listening, well, where the heck is this coming from? Is it our yeah. diet? Is it all emotional? Is it environmental? What are the big things people need to look out for? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, uh, lecture series I'm doing this year is is all about what I've coined as um, microglial activation syndrome, which I think is sexy as hell. Does that not sound really cool? Hell yeah, I love it. And I want you to explain it to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Put it yeah. on t-shirts, please. Right. Oh man, yeah, of my own heart. What is there an acronym? Me? I mean, MAS M-A. would be what it is. We could start saying mass or something. You know, you got that right. mass dog. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Start working on some branding. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll work on that one. But, but yeah, that's the, the title of my lecture that I'm giving at some medical conferences is combating neuroinflammation, a world on fire and unraveling microglial activation syndrome, kind of a mouthful, but so inflammation, that's, that's the thing. So microglial cells, those are just the innate immune cells of the central nervous system. So in the periphery, macrophages are kind of the heroes of the day. They gobble up pathogens and antigen presenting cells. They do all sorts of cool things. So the the microglial cells are basically the macrophages of the brain. And it's their job to protect the brain, period. That's what the immune system does, obviously. And of course, the immune system, it uses the, the cleansing fire of inflammation to do its remodeling and its healing. Like, oh, we got to, you know, gobble up a pathogen. We need to ooh, this neural connection is a little faulty. Let's just burn that bridge and use some BDNF to build a new bridge. I'm obviously simplifying some of the mechanisms, but conceptually it, it works. So it really all centers around the microglial cells, their activity. So dysfunction of microglial cells has been implicated in, in every mental illness you could imagine. Neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, you know, multiple sclerosis, ALS, autism, heavily depression. So it really comes down, and that's kind of why I was like, all right, so microglial dysfunction and neuro, it's it's the microglial cells that regulate really both neuroplasticity and neuroinflammation. They have a very important role in if we need to promote the cleansing fire to do some cleanup, you know, to protect the brain. Do we need to do some remodeling with BDNF? So then we have to kind of start looking at what activates the microglial cells. Because also, too, I should have said this, with the, you know, the neurotransmitter, everybody thinks mental illness, like, oh, you know, my serotonin's low, my, my GABA is low, and I'm anxious. And that's not wrong, but that's a little bit more downstream, whereas the microglial activation is upstream. So for example, you know, serotonin made from tryptophan or dopamine and catecholamines made from tyrosine. And the the neurotransmitters get dysregulated when the microglial cells become activated and there's inflammation. So inflammation, it lowers serotonin, it lowers GABA, it lowers dopamine, it raises uh, glutamate, which is excitotoxic. And literally the way I picture it's like, if your brain is too excited, excitatory, glutamatergic, I picture the brain starting to give off like electrical sparks. It's it's burning up and it doesn't take too many sparks before then the fire follows. And it's kind of like that. A lot of times it starts as more of an excitotoxic mechanism, but then the inflammation kind of follows foot. But it's all regulated 
by these microglial cells. So then it's like, okay, so what pisses off the microglial cells? And that's kind of where I got the whole phrase microglial activation syndrome, because if there is a single mechanism that is the common underlying denominator of all mental illness, it's microglial activation. And so then when you start looking at some of the factors that piss off the microglial cells, I mean, obviously, well, I mean, it's really just about anything. So anything inflammatory in the periphery, if you have peripheral inflammation, let's say you just have a lot of visceral fat, right? A lot of fat in the organs. We all know that's pro-inflammatory. You have, you know, higher level of meta-inflammation. Well, cytokines can cross the blood-brain barrier and that will activate microglial cells. Or if you have, you know, leaky gut and leaky brain from more of a gut-brain axis microbiota dysfunction, right? Or different nutrient deficiencies, zinc and copper and B9, B12, there's a lot of different micronutrients that play into this. Uh, we see that early life stress and trauma in autonomic nervous system dysregulation and, and chronic chronically elevated cortisol, this can activate microglial cells. So before you know it, it becomes like, wait a second, this is no different than the conversation of, of chronic inflammation and chronic disease. It's all the same stuff. Microglial cells are experiencing the same degree of inflammation and dysfunction as the rest of the body from our standard American diet, standard American lifestyle. You know, so when I'm mapping out a list, see if I can, there's a lot of them, but I always start with early life stress and trauma because it's like, you know, a lot of times the stuff experienced early in life, for one thing, that locked them into a dysregulated nervous system and disrupted their limbic system and the HPA axis. So we do see that individuals that have experienced early life stress or trauma, they have higher levels of inflammation and have a kind of increased rate of inflammation, you know, just the technical word for getting inflamed over time and immunosenescence as the immune system wears out. So that early life stress and trauma, a lot of people have that and that sets the stage for the inflammation. But then of course, like think about especially people our generation that were raised on processed food and sugar and are sedentary and, you know, then have a leaky gut and all of these things. So blood sugar, trauma, emotional distress, cortisol, um, any sort of microbial pathogen, whether it's bacteria, mold, you know, any sort of gut brain axis dysfunction, um, nutrient deficiency. So it becomes a, a very holistic conversation that we have to be having with how do we you know, decrease the microglial activation, which ultimately is what's driving the neurotransmitters out of range and causing you to, to experience the symptoms of depression and anxiety and whatnot. It just gets more and more complex. It's like you can't possibly know that from any one test. You have to have a practitioner that's willing to really go deep with you and have that conversation and clear out every cobweb in the corner, right? Because you know, your basic intake yeah. is not going to bring that up. And then you go deeper. That's still not going to bring everything. And then you go deep. It's like, there's so many layers to it. Yeah. It, I, I think mental health dysfunction becomes a very, it can be a very complex web. But if anything, you know, with the functional medicine space, again, with my background in fitness and nutrition, I, I certainly don't say this as like, I, I left that to focus on functional medicine. But, you know, I feel like the functional fitness movement has done more for public health than functional medicine. Like look at what CrossFit did. It got thousands, if not millions of people around the world moving their body functionally with intensity, 
while eating a primal whole food diet, maybe taking some fish oil, maybe being a little more health conscious. Like and with at, community. And Having with community. Fun and yeah. with joy, with friends, yeah. Social isolation. That's another one that contributes to microglial activation. So more of that mm-hmm. psychosomatic side of things, right? So, yeah. but the thing is, so to your point though, why I said that, it can be complicated, but like the fundamentals have to be in place first. And honestly, those fundamentals are going to get like, 80% of the problems fixed in 80% of people. It's it's not until like if you're already, you know, regularly working out and some sort of spiritual self-help practice, introspection, you know, you got the sleep on point, you have nutrition, half decent, that's what the masses need. And then if that's not enough, that's that's that other 20% that's like, oh, you have mold illness or Lyme or, you know, something a little more complex that that is like you know big straw that's breaking the camel's back but the camel's back was already you know one straw away from snapping so sure totally yeah you still have to cover all the basics first yeah always yeah and and of course our our space you know it's like well how do we biohack that or what's the protocol for that and it's like I don't know, maybe start moving your body and be nice to yourself <laughs> maybe and eating real food. <laughs> sleep at a normal time, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe get, so, maybe get off your phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just the basics. It's, it keeps yeah. coming back to the basics. But if that's not enough, yeah, there can definitely be some of those, you know, deeper things going on that those aren't well talked about either, you know. So. Yeah. And Brendan, I know you are, you know, really, really picky with your lab testing. And I, and I've heard you talk about this before on Instagram, you know, a lot of functional medicine doctors, they'll just like run these 10 labs just to kind of check all the boxes off. But you're really picky about what you choose to run first. Can you talk about that? Like basic blood panel? Do you start there? What are you looking for? How do you get to the point of realizing it is mold or lime or whatever ended up being the final piece? Yeah, yeah, I am really picky. (laughs) I love yeah. that. I think that's great. I yeah. And like we've been saying, I think a lot of functional medicine practitioners, they fall into that same trap as allopathic medicine, where it's just like test, supplement, test, supplement, and just get down that rabbit hole where now the patient has spent $3,000 and you're only two weeks in. You're like, well, now I can't afford yeah. to do anything. Right. Well, you've been down that. You have experience. So you know what works and what what you really don't need. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and Lauren, you were at the uh, the blood workshop a, a while back, so you'll you'll remember this. Where again, the truth is always somewhere in the middle, because you know, kind of the the stereotypical conventional experience that a lot of people have is, well, my doctor said my blood work looks normal, and there's nothing wrong with me, and it's all in my head, and here's a drug for that. That okay, was me. Well, yeah, when that, was that was me. That was me. That was us. That's you know, that's what people are really, really tired of. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of the typical experience on in one end of the spectrum, but on the other end of the spectrum, then in the functional space, we're like, Oh, like, I'm so sorry, like silly conventional medicine, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. In fact, <laughs> you actually have, you've got leaky gut, you've got mast cell activation syndrome, you have Lyme, you have mold, you have endotoxemia, you have that, 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 that and rattling off all these things and doing like $20,000 testing. It's crazy. And it's like, Oh, hmm, okay. Like, and the lack of functional fitness and the lack of even customized nutrition in the functional medicine space, I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. So this is still kind of kind of labs and pills and, you know, it's like, oh, it's totally the same thing. 
same yeah, approach. So there's there's still some work to be done there. But with yeah. testing, I'll kind of start with a disclaimer by saying like there's a time and a place for everything. And you know, there's a lot of cool tests coming out. There's there's a lot of money to be made in lab testing these days because you know the public is becoming more intelligent. They want to know, they want data, right? You see every industry doing more and more of this. And so lab testing is just part of that. Of it's the the citizen scientist, it's the self-healer. People want to learn, they want to know the science, they want to be able to measure, they they want to do testing. Especially too, people want to see on a piece of paper something that explains their suffering, right? Yeah. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Hey, biohackers, Renee here. I just wanted to interrupt today's episode to announce our next giveaway winner. Thank you to everyone that wrote in some awesome reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate all of you so much. And we decided to draw a name today. And our winner is username Taz42. Um, I also wanted to share the review. Thank you so much for writing this in. So Taz said, fun and informative. I love the enthusiasm these ladies bring to my feed every week. They always have something new to share and make biohacking feel accessible and achievable for everyone. Awesome. So Taz, please uh, email us with your information. So send us an email, biohackerbabes at gmail.com. Let us know if you would like either a gift card to Kion, one of our favorite supplement companies, or Four Sigmatic, which is our go-to mushroom, superfood, coffee, cacao, all that good stuff brand. All the amazing things. (laughs) Thank you so much again, Taz, and congratulations. Please reveal yourself to get your gift. And thank you to everyone else who wrote a review. We really, really appreciate you continuing to support our podcast. Oh, and one more quick announcement before we get back to today's episode. We wanted to let you all know that we are going to be releasing our podcasts on Tuesdays going forward. If you've been a longtime listener, you know we always release on Mondays, but we're going to be switching things up. So next week, make sure you check in on Tuesday for the next episode. All right, let's get back to the show. And so I kind of have to say the nice part to set the stage, but then on the flip side of that, you know, a lot of the testing that people get really excited about, it's like, uh, that hasn't really been validated yet. You know, if it was really thoroughly validated, we'd probably be using it in conventional healthcare. But a lot of these tests are kind of experimental. They're using technology that's questionable. So to give a concrete example, our industry is really obsessed with stool testing. <laughs> like really obsessed. Oh, I was waiting for you to get to yeah. this. I'm so excited for this. Because <laughs> you have great analogies. Yeah. And I get it. I totally get it. Cause I was there, you know, I was like, wow, this is really cool. Cause you know, the microbiome, the, the, the research on the microbiome, it's changed everything we think we know about human health and medicine. And it is starting to change this. I mean, we're our conventional government and system is still very caught up on germ theory, but you know, scientists and forward thinking and functional, we're all like, wow, you know, microbiome, like humans are not humans, we're, we're super organisms, we have more bacterial cells than human cells. Like, for every one human cell, we have 10 times as many or we have 10, uh, 10 times as many bacterial cells, right? Like, that's crazy. So we're more, we're more bacteria than human. And, you know, microbes and germs, germs, germ theory, you know, they're the building blocks of, of life itself, right? So, that that has really stimulated an obsession with the microbiome, rightfully so. And so that stimulated 
an obsession with stool testing. And of course, everything, everything starts with the gut. So if I just address the gut, I'm going to fix everything. And oh, well, I can just, I can just have my client take a single stool sample and we're going to analyze that stool sample and it'll just map out exactly what their garden of life that is their microbiome looks like. And then I can just precisely like, ooh, this bug that came in a little bit of high. So we're going to do a protocol that snuffs that out. We're going to you know, kill that was, one. This one was a little bit low. We want to build, mm -hmm. we, we do not. Okay. So there's literally research <laughs> papers literally research papers that are like, even though, uh, you know, 16S PCR, that's the popular technology being used primarily. Um, and there's pros and cons to each, but the point being like the 16 PS, uh, 16S PCR testing or 18S, which is what they use for fungi, it's not commercially available yet. It's helping us study the microbiome. It's helping us study, you know, the composition of the microbiome but we haven't yet figured out what does that mean for human health. So when you see these fancy, you know, microbiome testing panels that are, you know, this bacteria is high and this one's low, for one thing, can we possibly map out the entire microbiome based off a single stool sample? You know, the, the, the intestinal tract's like 25 feet long with the surface area of a tennis court. You think a single poo sample is gonna be able to map out your trillions of microbes? But then there's also right. different Yeah, I've heard you say many times it's like things. fishing, right? It's like depends on the day that you go fishing. Oh, what are yeah. you gonna catch? Oh yeah. Well it's it's like, you know, it's like trying to find a, a needle in the haystack. Like I kind of missed the days when it was just microscopy was the only way to test for GI infections of like, oh, I see a bunch of worms in your poo. Like, yeah, I think you're infected. So the thing is, there are some fundamental principles of the microbiome that we know pretty well. Like we know diversity is good. We know that we need plenty of short-chain fatty acids. It's the, it's the short-chain fatty acids that are really the molecules by which the microbiome has such a big impact on our entire body. It's, it's those molecules that do all the magic. You know that we, we know hyperpermeability is bad. We know that you know endotoxins, and we know that um, the, the microbiome and you know mycotoxins can be a thing. We know that the bacteroides permacutes ratio matters. So there's like these general characteristics that we know, but what our industry is already doing and is obsessed with is thinking that we can just map it out and then just create a protocol that like spot treats it. And we don't have that kind of clinical precision and we don't have any scientific data because we don't know what the microbiome should look like. We know that out of the 9 billion people on planet Earth, we know that there's like 70 major bacterial lineages. And we know that every single human out of the 9 billion, whether you live in Asia or America, the human microbiome is 95% dominated by only two, which is bacteroides and firmicutes. And we know that an altered ratio, uh, a more fermentation heavy microbiome with a dominance of firmicutes. We know that's associated with inflammation and, and weight gain and basically everything bad. But yeah, we just, we don't really know enough about what the microbiome should look like and then how that, so they haven't figured out the mechanism by which all of these things. So it's such a complicated picture. So I think what I see a lot of practitioners doing, they're chasing bugs in the poo and we don't, we don't have a clue. We don't know. What a uh, fun job. Yeah. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a, that's whole a great thing. quote right there. Yeah. Yeah. 
And part of it, it just takes time. It, it takes time of, well, let's use this tool. Let's make observations and see if there's any application. But, you know, I always teach my students, too, to kind of play devil's advocate. There's really two reasons to run a lab test, uh, either as a clinical tool, because we need to figure out what's going on here. Or then the other side is as a coaching tool. So my point being, I, I, I know what test you're talking about. I hate it. <laughs> I wouldn't tell anybody to waste their money on it. Uh, there are some, you know, I use stool testing all the time, but I'm using inflammatory markers or digestive markers that are validated and used in medical settings. But, you know, the microbiome yeah. mapping, we, we just don't really know yet. And so I think it's leading people down, you know, on these kind of wild microbiome goose hunts and stuff that we just... You know, um, but yeah, you could run seven on yourself seven days in a row and have seven totally different results. So, how could you possibly correlate that with anything going on with your health or clinically? But the the other reason to run a lab test would be as a coaching tool. So, for example, maybe that that test from like a clinical application or what it means scientifically is very very weak, but maybe just maybe seeing that piece of paper gets that client to actually care about their gut health and start adopting a gut healing lifestyle, in which case, well, <laughs> maybe it that's is worth the money. You know what I mean? If so, it makes them yeah. eat more vegetables, then yeah. let's do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's a good so, pairs the shit out of them <laughs> to yeah. make some changes. Yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, the, right. the testing, it's just, it's just tools in the toolbox. So it's not as much the testing that I have an issue with. It's how professionals are using it. Because I think a lot of professionals, mm -hmm. they're really good at talking their clients or patients into buying all this testing that the you know efficacy might be questionable or unestablished or whatever it is, and making these these um, really exaggerated and not very validated claims or leading them on this path. All the while, there's a lot of orthorexia inducing you know um, kind of stuff going on in functional medicine and functional health coaching because we're so good at spending their money and showing them how messed up they are and all the things wrong with them and leading them down these protocol rabbit holes. So it's on how we're using it. Because if we use it to empower them, if we use healthy psychology, you know, behavior coaching and motivational interviewing, we can take any tool and make it constructive. But I, you know, if we're misusing the tool, it's destructive. So that that brings us back to it becomes not even as much conversation about lab tests as it is like what are we doing as coaches and clinicians and are we using strategies that educate and empower people in a positive way or are we just scaring the hell out of them and making them worried and neurotic and orthorexic yeah and contributing yeah. to their mental health dysfunction <laughs> totally i see so it all the time yeah to kind of bring it back to the mental health piece since we spent most of our time there if someone is experiencing some symptoms or they're struggling in this in this area of their life where do we start where would you tell them to go yeah i know that's a loaded question well no i you know I, I've yeah, a, 30 I've seconds a, to answer <laughs> yeah, right, 30 minutes um yeah. yeah you know i have just kind of the, there's the the basic roadmap i mean i will say like the psycho-emotional sides that, that's the hardest side to navigate you know absolutely the hardest side to navigate and you know, I'm a fan of psychotherapy or just having a really good friend that can hold space for you. But, you know, I've had times in my life, there was nobody to hold space for me but myself. So at the end of the day, at some point, people have to take some ownership and be brave and look inwards. And, you know, there's, there's, that's a whole thing that whew, different podcasts for a different day. But 
ultimately, you know, it, it's the fundamentals. So like if the nutrition isn't like, if it's anything short of clean, as clean as you can afford or source or whatever, uh, if it's not clean whole foods, if it's anything short of that, like you've got work to do, homie. You know, if the sleep hygiene isn't on point, you got to get it done. If the, you know, some sort of, I, I think the spiritual practice of some kind, and I, and I think spirituality is so individualized and what that looks like or how it's practiced, but, you know, whether it's yoga or meditation or breathing or praying or whatever it is, some sort of psycho-emotional, spiritual, introspective practice is, is so crucial. Mindfulness I think so, so much of our depression is kind of self-afflicted because of all of that. But from more of an easy side on the physiology, the basic lifestyle stuff, but to maybe go a step two further, like if I was feeling really depressed, I'd probably do some fasting. I'd probably move to a primal paleo. I mean, I already live this way. So, which keep in mind, I should mention that too. Um, I, you know, I am medication free. I have been for like five years now. It took me forever to get off all those drugs. You know, so the point being like, I've, I've healed my brain naturally and whatnot, but I still have to manage it, right? Um, and what I found for myself, I'm very prone to depressive behavior. Like even just sometimes the delayed onset muscle soreness I get from a hard leg day, even just that inflammation can be enough to make me depressed for like a day. So I still have to manage it. You know, I still have days that it, it flares up a little bit. I just, I, I have the tools to know what I need to do to, to manage it more effectively. But yeah, I mean, intermittent fasting has a, a lot of great uh, benefits for improving mental health. That could be its own podcast or, you know, ketones definitely have a, a neuroprotective effect. So whether that's exogenous ketones or kind of doing a ketogenic or that's a podcast in itself. But the, <laughs> I, I think, I, you know, I don't, I don't like all the, you know, it's vegan or plant-based or carnivore. Like, I don't like how extreme we get with nutrition. It's just start with whole foods, uh, create that metabolic flexibility, you know, eat, eat when you want, like, don't go with any rules or anything. So people have to find what that means for them. But that more kind of paleo primal, when there's a lot of met metabolic flexibility, you know, you have a great microbiome, so you have great short chain fatty, fatty acids, you tap into ketosis once in a while, whether that's just because you're fasting, or you're doing intentionally or whatever. That's great for the brain, lots of sunlight, sunlight, I just was doing this yesterday where, you know, ambient sunlight exposure, it raises serotonin, it raises BDNF, it's neuroprotective, you know, and then there's all the more like technical stuff, functional medicine stuff uh, getting into, but it's really just those fundamentals. So that's the beautiful thing is for all the, um, like functional medicine is a little bit more niched, but kind of zooming out to the functional health space, you know, I think of the, the paleo primal biohacking, holistic health coaches, that's the beautiful thing. It's like, we've got this stuff down to a science and it, it's all of that. The more we, and ultimately everything, when you look at the science, it just points us back to nature. It points us back to being more human, right? Even like the vagus nerve, everybody loves talking about the vagus nerve. It, it wears me out. And people, oh, <laughs> I'm going to include humming into your gastrointestinal protocol because, you know, humming and singing is going to strengthen your vagal tone. It's like, well, you're not wrong, but, oh, is that what, we, you know, just be more human. Like, go, yeah, go just like put moon, some music like, on it. Moan and groan, have sex, <laughs> lots of sex. There's like, a reason we all sing yeah. in the shower, okay? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah. like, 
I, I think humans are so damn emotionally constipated. I think we are <laughs> experiencing a sensation as a species that we're all so emotionally pent up and constipated. We're the only living species that lives dysbiotically with the natural world. We're, we're the only living species that doesn't live in harmony with nature in the natural environment. We're the only living species that doesn't behave like an animal. We, we say one thing, but we do another. We try to hide emotions rather, we depress emotions rather than expressing them. Like you just, you wonder why we're all so depressed because we're not being human. We've forgotten yeah. what it means to be human and we're not being human in the natural world. So we're living in the matrix now and everything's fake. You know, it's virtual conversations, it's fake food, it's take a fake synthetic thing to fix the disease that the fake food gave you. It's the 10 minute workout. Like, mm. it's it's no wonder, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. I mean, I just, you know, I, I look to my cats for kind of yeah. advice on this, right? Because they're not doing all those things that you just said, you know, they they're nocturnal. They're awake all night. They sleep all day. They don't yeah. question it. They don't yeah. turn on a bright light and say, I'm going to force myself to stay awake. You know, right. they go to the yeah. sunshine. They just listen to their natural intuition. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. My dog naturally just runs sprints. He goes outside when we let him go outside. It's like, right? I got to get my exercise in. He just sprints. And then when he gets tired, he's like, I got to go back inside now. Yeah. <laughs> Lay down. Yeah. Exactly. There's so yeah. much that we could, you know, learn It's So something I, I know I want to do something with it long term. I just don't know what it looks like yet because I'm just trying to keep up. But returning to symbiosis, like a return to symbiosis, that's kind of the thing I've been starting to talk about. And it's just it's it's something I can't get out of my head, right? Because it's like we love talking about dysbiosis, and it's like, and we're talking about infectious disease. And it's like uh, our species is acting like the infectious disease on this planet. You know, we are the we are the dysbiosis right? Oh, we are the yeah. dysbiosis of, of mother nature in this planet. And until we wake up as a collective and realize that, so that's where like somebody that really inspires me is, is Zach Bush, right? I mean, that dude's amazing. He's, uh, and everything, right? He's <laughs> yeah. amazing. All hands up. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm trying to rope him into my podcast. That's, you know, like we're, we're working on it, but that, that guy really inspires me because I like that he is leading this connection of, okay, like, you know, as impressive as of a medical doctor as it gets, but what's his message, you know, regenerative agriculture, and you know, the microbiome of the planet. And so I like that he is he is helping lead us back to symbiosis, but that's what we need. And so I, I mean, this might be getting a little bit out there and isn't directly related mental illness, but the, the cure for mental illness is that return to symbiosis, the, the cure for humanity is that return to symbiosis. I dream of a world where instead of Wi-Fi, we tap into the hyphal fungal networks of the earth, which is the communication network of, of mother nature and viruses. They're, you know, it's genetic material that's being communicated to the world, right? So we will see disease, chronic disease, lifestyle-induced, self-induced disease go away when we when we start living with nature and building with nature and and adding to you know that's what Zach Bush talks about like the the co-creation mm -hmm. so that that's kind of the dream I, I the the world I dream of you know I love that yeah I yeah, yeah. I want to be a part of that too yeah well we're gonna Same. start it <laughs> it yeah. starts Hell with yeah. meeting up for functional friends <laughs> and then yeah, we'll absolutely. 
somewhere in twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll make that. Um, Brandon, so much amazing advice. Before we let you go, can we narrow that down? Can you give our audience one piece of advice that they could start working on today? I don't know. Can we take a mental <laughs> laxative? <If> not, <laughs> what can <Yeah>. we do? <laughs> yeah, a mental laxative. Um, you know, we should have talked about psychedelics. Um, Part two. Well, yeah. you, you know that you're coming back on, right? Do I mean, I to... suppose <laughs> there are more conversations to be had for sure. So much But more. like, the thing is that the savage side of the holistic savage would say, stop bypassing your shit. <laughs> I see a lot of people that what they, what they want is a pill protocol uh, based on lab testing, but what they need is to stop spiritually bypassing their inner wounded child and, you know, their, their fragmented soul, right? Um, and tame their ego a little bit. So that's that's step one. Step two is start eating real food, sleeping like a baby, moving your body, howling at the moon, being the freaking animal that you are. And then step three is hit, hit somebody up if you're still struggling and get help. You know what I mean? So yeah, three-step plan. Great. Yeah, there's, there's your three-step <laughs> plan. Turn into a book. Yeah. All right. You heard oh, it here. <laughs> gosh, this is incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. This is oh, so awesome. Likewise, this was so much fun. And and I, I genuinely, I mean, Lauren, we met Paleo a while back, uh, but I, I can't wait to genuinely get to hang out in person someday. Yes. Me too. Uh, real hugs yeah. and functional yeah. fun, F-U-N. Yeah. yeah. Can't spell <laughs> uh, functional without fun, you know? Ah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, so I just get motivational interviewed. <laughs> Yeah, I know all your stuff. I'm like just waiting for you to say it. <laughs> I love it. It's fun. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And for everyone at home, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. Happy biohacking.